Sure, good morning, my name is Jordan. Um, let me tell you about a piano teacher I had growing up, in case you haven't heard about that yet. Um, but I, I took piano lessons growing up, and I hated it so much. Like, I loathed it. I'm sorry, Mom, I know you spent a lot of money on it. But I was such a brat about it as well. Like, I remember I would often have to ride my bike to piano lessons, and I would be getting really close to the house, and then I would just turn off and go the longest possible route so that I would be a little bit late, so the lesson would be shorter. Um, I remember even being in my lesson, and the teacher would leave the room for a second, and I would get up and go push the digital clock forward a few minutes just so I could get out of there faster. I was such a brat about it. But, but the reality is, we are the kind of beings that need teachers. We need to be taught, whether it's to play the piano or, or play a sport or to live. And we typically learn first from our parents and then from other people like our classmates, our coworkers, our boss, our culture. And the difficulty is, especially in our day where we see authority as suspect often, we don't think of ourselves as having to learn or needing a teacher. And so we rarely ask this question, who has mastered life? Who is worthy of being a teacher that I can sit under? And for many people, we think about Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the one who will get us into heaven and forgive us of our sins. And so our question is, have I accepted Jesus as my Savior? Big question, absolutely. But there's another one we have to ask. Have I accepted Jesus as my teacher? And that's a big question for us today. And if you think about the disciples, the first followers of Jesus, they actually began with that question. They began accepting him as their teacher, and then Jesus later became the savior of their lives as a natural overflow of that. But they began with him as their teacher, because we all need to learn how to live from somewhere. This is the expression of the very first psalm, Psalm 1, which is part of the portion of the scriptures known as the wisdom literature. It's where the Israelites would go to gain wisdom and learn knowledge. It's where we should go as well. And so this first psalm is an expression of two ways to approach wisdom. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He, he essentially uses the language, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, meaning anyone but God. And maybe we hear that phrase, and we default to thinking that the counsel of the ungodly is someone saying to you growing up, like, hey, why don't you start smoking, or why don't we go out drinking, or why don't you just have sex, or why don't you be an atheist? But honestly, the counsel of the ungodly is really just people talking, isn't it? Dallas Willard says this about the counsel of the ungodly. He says, it is the counsel to live as though it is not true that you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's glorious universe. So the counsel of the ungodly is live as though it matters what people think of me. 
It's live as though the outcomes of my life are upon my shoulders and I control it. And so you have this constant pressure on your life. The counsel of the ungodly is live as though aging doesn't matter. Or live as though aging is something to worry about, is what I should have said. The counsel of the ungodly is live as though satisfying my desires and my appetites is central to my well-being and happiness, and it's a wise way of living. That's the counsel of the ungodly. And it goes on all over the place. Sadly, it even goes on within the walls of churches. This council really starts as soon as a human being arrives in the world. You just got to turn on the TV, go online, scroll through social media, listen to people around you, and mostly what you'll hear is acquire more, be more successful, look younger, look better, get back at those who hurt you because that'll make you feel better. Do whatever you need to do to be stronger and gain more power. But the psalmist says that there's another way. And that's the person who doesn't follow that counsel, but rather who delights in the way and the plan and the power and the presence of God. And that's a life that can flourish. That's a life that can be good and the only life that can give true freedom and joy. And so there's this decision that we all face, and, and part of the danger of the world is, is it causes us to forget that we actually have to decide who we're going to learn from. We barely even view that as a live, active question right now. But whether we know it or not, we all have to decide. We will all go one way or another. And this is why it's so important for those of you here who want to follow Jesus closely, or for those of you who have been following other things of this world and they're not satisfying you and you want something else and something better, and for those of you who want to lead people towards Jesus, you have to know that Jesus is the best and only one for human beings to learn how to live from. Only Jesus. And so as we head into our text this morning, you'll remember as we got into chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, we, we saw a major turn in Paul's stance towards the Corinthians. Since then, he has been challenging a group of them that still remain rebellious towards the gospel. And Paul is deeply concerned about them because his job, his calling, like any church leader, like any pastor, is to get them home safely. And Paul deeply loves them, and he's concerned about the state of their souls. And some of the Corinthians, as we saw last week, have been seduced by false teachers. They were very impressed with these teachers for all the wrong reasons. It's like an episode of The Bachelor. They were there for all the wrong reasons. For the record, I don't watch that show. My wife told me that's a line from him. Don't judge me. Um... Their big problem was they were enamored by the false teachers because these false teachers had great outward strength, worldly strengths. For example, we know from chapter 10 that these teachers were very powerful. They were charismatic. They were intellectual speakers. They could draw a crowd. They could rally people, get them fired up with words. And Paul was just the opposite of that. He even says, I'm not a great speaker. 
but I do have knowledge. But these other guys were very rhetorically fancy and clever. They were intelligent people. And let me say this is true amongst false teachers today. Imbeciles don't lead people astray. No one wants to follow that. Likewise today, these false teachers in Corinth were seen as very successful. They were wealthy. They were dressed to the nines in fancy, expensive clothes, like if you check out the Instagram page, at Preachers and Sneakers. This rings very true with many false teachers today, and and you should expect this because people are always going to be impressed with certain external factors. Education, intellectual strength, physical appearance, bank accounts, social status. Furthermore, many of these teachers claim to have special mystical experiences and powers which they use to validate what they had to say because they've spoken directly with the Lord and the Lord has given them wisdom outside the scriptures that's only for them and they would use that to impress and draw people in. And for the false teachers in Corinth, they were, they were also Jewish and so they were able to claim the perfect lineage the perfect bloodline to be doing what they're doing. They used all these things to impress people and take their eyes off of the simple gospel that this simple man Paul was preaching on. And so here we are in the midst of Paul's plea with the Corinthians to try to regain unity in the church rooted in the gospel. And we saw last week that Paul said that we get into trouble and we get off track when we overestimate ourselves, when we underestimate the opposition, and especially when we underestimate the being, the character, and the judgment of God. You'll notice he says this last week in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. He says their end will correspond their deeds. So the final destiny of these false teachers, the final destiny will reveal all things and God's judgment will reign accordingly. That's a terrifying verse. And we should not underestimate that, but we should be living in light of that reality. And so the boasting of these false teachers had been so substantial in influencing people away from Jesus that Paul realized that he was going to have to do some of the same. He was going to have to boast himself in an effort to be heard by this group of people. That's why in the first verse of chapter 11, he prepares his readers for the boasting that is to come in today's text. He says this in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. So he's setting up that he's about to argue like a fool. It's a really ironic section of scripture that Paul strategically uses to prove a point. He's going to argue like a worldly fool to draw their attention because for whatever reason, this appeals to them. And after he argues like a fool... We'll notice a shift where he begins to argue like a wise man. And so we'll see both of these arguments. They're both very important. They tie together and they lead us to this big reality this morning. That if we are to know and experience the power of God in our lives, we must abandon all other forms of power. 
And I can't think of a message that is more important in this season of our culture and in our society. That you cannot truly know the Father and experience the freedom, love, and joy to the fullness without abandoning, renouncing, forsaking all other forms of power and putting them far secondary to Jesus Christ. Every individual, we all have some form of power. Every culture specializes in certain forms of power. In some places, power comes to you by your position in your tribe. It comes to you by your position in your genealogy. In some places, power comes by your intellectual intelligence, your academic training. In some places, power comes by your physical appearance, your athletic ability. In some places, power becomes you by you having a lot of money or the capacity to make more. In some places, power comes to you because you're at the top of your social ladder and you have a name and a reputation that's enviable and prestigious. Power comes through fitness classes and inspirational quotes like, just shoot for the moon and even if you miss, you'll end up among the stars. Yes, I feel so good now. It comes through powerful speeches, community mantras, slogans, strike first, strike hard, Cobra Kai never dies, ah! And you feel good. And the Apostle Paul says, it's foolish to boast about these things. So he says you've been allowing yourself to be so impressed by these forms of power that you've actually listened to some messages and thought that they were the gospel because someone had a big crowd or a big following or the right education or credibility, worldly success, and they made you feel good in the moment. And what you've done is you've allowed these forms of worldly power to reshape what you believe the truth really is. And, and that sure really is what culture tends to do. And it's, it's very evident today. Like, we tend to take the gospel message and we hear it and we outwardly nod our head like, yes, amen. Jesus died in our place by no work of our own so that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and then we head on out into the world and we begin to hear these other voices, which are very powerful and influential and popular, and we try to blend it all together perfectly, so that not only do we keep people happy inside the church, but we keep everyone happy outside the church as well, so that everyone is satisfied with our blended, all-inclusive message and our blended lifestyle. And Paul says that life leads to death, not to life. In fact, 1 John, I'll just read verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The only way in which you can truly know the power of God is if you renounce these other forms of power to be the source of your freedom and joy. And so I'm not saying, like, quit your job or stop working hard or stop going to fitness classes or whatever. I am saying that the power that you gain from those things will not satisfy you and will only lead you to wanting more and only God himself as your boast can give you the power and freedom you're searching for. 
And so now as we move into verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's ready to boast on their level. But, but again, fearing that anyone hears his boasting as anything but foolish, he restates his warning in verse 16. Look at it with me. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So Paul is very upfront that he doesn't want people to think that he's a fool like these other false teachers who, who lure people in with their boasting and their arrogance and their pridefulness. And he says, the only reason I'm going to argue in this foolish way is because for whatever reason, you've been listening to it. And so Paul is not excited about having to say what he is about to, and you see that in what commentators believe to be a really a sarcastic and almost a mocking rhetoric from Paul here. And he's going to ironically call the Corinthians wise for being persuaded by these false teachers boasting. Look at verse 19. He says, For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. He goes on, For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. He's essentially saying, in a mocking tone, like, you're so smart and you're so brilliant. You have things so figured out that you put up with and you listen to and you follow fools who have no regard for your well-being. And then he adds, verse 21, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of. He's mockingly saying, shame on me. I guess I should have really taken advantage of you as well, like these false apostles were doing. So now that Paul has qualified his position for his upcoming argument with the appropriate sarcasm and mockery, he begins into this dreaded boasting, which he's really arranged very beautifully here. Let's look, verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And so what he's doing here is he's laying out this three-part identity. He says, as a Hebrew, I am a pure ethnic Hebrew. I'm also an Israelite, and I am an offspring of Abraham. The point being, if they were to follow anyone based on lineage or ethnicity, no one comes close to matching these credentials. Now, what Paul is saying here about his credentials is undoubtedly true, but Paul can barely bear to point this out because it counters the gospel, and he knows it. It counters the call in our lives to live a humble life, in which you deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow Jesus. But Paul's going to continue this foolish boast of his, but by asking a question in verse 23, which is going to shift his boast from his flesh and his identity to his weakness. And so watch what happens. This is, 
This is so interesting. You can feel how uncomfortable he is and how much he dislikes arguing like this by his grammatical style, all right? Look what he says, verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, M dash. I am talking like a madman, M dash. So I'm gonna give you a little English lesson here. An M dash is used to make a powerful or like almost a reflexive statement, okay? So it would be like if I was saying, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Oh my gosh, I'm talking like a madman. I can't believe what I'm saying right now. This is so ridiculous. I'm arguing like a complete fool. Okay, let me go on. And then he goes on. He's using this grammatical style to continually point out that he's talking like a complete fool here. And so now that the the foolish boasting that he had in 21 and 22, it's now going to become doubly foolish. Can we say that? Doubly foolish? From 23 to the end of the chapter, because he is about to boast in something, something that they would never dare to boast of, his weaknesses. Like, what a foolish thing to be proud of, according to the world. Countercultural to how, how we would all sell ourselves. He boasts in what would likely lead him to, to getting fired if he had your job, or if he was applying in an interview. There's no way he's getting a second interview. And it's interesting, too, because coming out of his first boast about his identity and background, he has a really good argument. If, if he just took the natural progression, he could have been like, I have this great lineage, and also, I've established all these churches in Ephesus, in Rome, in Philippi. I've preached the gospel in more lands and nations and ethnic groups than you could ever imagine. I've traveled all these miles. I've converted all these people. I've even healed people's sicknesses. I've written books. I've raised money for the church. I even went to a place called the third heaven and talked with Jesus face to face. Like he has that argument available to him. That would be like a mic drop moment, but he doesn't say any of that. He goes the opposite direction. And here's, here's what's interesting culturally, okay? The list he's about to give was common in the pagan community of the day. Here's what I mean, little history lesson. Augustus Caesar, who, who was the emperor from about 27 BC until, B, until 14 AD, a time period the Corinthians would be very familiar with, he wrote a eulogy in his own honor listing all of his accomplishments. You can look it up. It's called the Res Geste Divi Augusti. And in it, he numbers all of his accomplishments. So it's, he writes like, I've uh, done this five times. Four times I've built these great monuments. Three times I traveled here. Two times I did this. And now Paul is going to copy this model, but go in the opposite direction and number his weaknesses. Look at verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. So what Paul is doing is he's really methodically writing a parody of Caesar's resume. He argues for the authenticity and authority of the gospel and his apostleship from his weaknesses, not his strengths. 
And so in the culture of Corinth, this would be an extremely foolish way to sell yourself. It'd be foolish to sell yourself like that today. But from the culture of the scriptures, this is holy and and divine foolishness. And so as Paul goes into his list here, he begins with a generalized statement about his sufferings in verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am, I'm a better one. Oh, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near-death experiences. Like, can you imagine starting a job interview like that? Well, like, things are always really difficult for me. Um, I usually get put in probation or thrown in jail, and people really don't like what I say, so they usually beat me within an inch of my life. Like, this is crazy how Paul's arguing. It's, it's a picture of a life overflowing with sufferings, and that's his way of proving his authenticity and his faith in Jesus. And so maybe you're piecing it together right now and you're wondering, so are you saying that an authentic walk with Jesus involves a life overflowing with suffering? Yeah. None of these false teachers in Paul's day, or or even ours, could match the suffering that Paul endured. And to be blunt, many would even contend in their teaching that suffering does not exist for those who follow God. That's a lie. Like, I could read you countless texts about this, something for you to look into this week. And so Paul goes on in this parody of Caesar's resume with this this list of horrific sufferings. Verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. In simplest terms, um, the 40 lashes less one, so do the math, 39 lashes, that was a Hebrew punishment that was given in the synagogue. It was the most severe beating that law would allow. It was brutally painful and humiliating. And the reason it was 39 is because 40 was allowed by law. But if the executioner did more than 40, he himself would be beaten by law. So to play it safe, he would do 39 so he didn't flirt with that 41 number. And and here's the thing. By law, Paul could have gotten out of any one of those five sets of lashes at any time by simply agreeing to stop preaching the gospel. But he never did. Could you imagine getting whipped 39 times once? Like, wouldn't that make you question your motives and maybe think about changing your ways? Not Paul. He knew the message he had was worth enduring the lashes, not once, not twice, five times. And if you can emotionally connect with this idea right now, then you have to comprehend something beautiful happening and coming out of this. And that's Paul's love for people. It was always Paul's plan to care for his people 
and to love them with the gospel message. And that man walking right into the face of these beatings and getting beaten within an inch of his life again and again because he knew he had something better. He really has a heroic, painful love for his people. His resume is literally covered by his own blood. He talks about getting beaten by a rod. That was an instrument of Roman or Gentile punishment. And the only recording we have of this is in Acts 16, where he and Silas are beaten with the rod and then thrown into jail. And he says this happened three times, but based on his journeys, you've got to think this happened more. And so if you put these two together, you realize that Paul's body, that thing was probably marked up bad. And it became a living monument. You could look right at him and see his love for people all over him. He says this in Galatians 6, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of his love for people. The marks of dedication to the gospel. The marks, scars of love. We have a a full account of Paul's stoning in Acts 14 in Lystra, and they thought he was dead. And really, he should have been. The only reason he wasn't is because this was an unorganized, chaotic mob stoning him. If this was done in the traditional organized way, there's no way he survives this. Disasters on the sea, those were commonplace in these times, like poorly made ships, misprinted maps, bad navigation. But the three shipwrecks he talks about here are actually preceded by another one. And that's one that comes at the end of Acts when he travels the entirety of the Mediterranean and is shipwrecked off the island of Malta. And then he adds here that that one was so bad that he spent 24 hours floating on the wreckage on sea. 24 hours just floating there. And so you put all this together and you have 11 near-death experiences at this point of his ministry and you've got to think he experienced a lot more. And you see that suffering, not success, authenticated his ministry. That's one of the most countercultural things you could ever say. You go into work tomorrow and say that. What we need, less success, more suffering. People will think you're crazy. But this was Paul's reality. Weaknesses, covered in weaknesses, marked in weaknesses, and he boasts in that. Suffering, not success, authenticated Paul's ministry. And then he goes on almost rhythmically, and he gives us eight instances of danger. Verse 26, he's on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. What this tells us, I mean, we already know, but Paul is not a tourist along for the ride. 
He's not traveling around the world on some sightseeing tour. No, he experiences danger at every turn, in every form, rivers, people, the city, wilderness, everywhere. But what stands out the most, what was the most difficult danger for Paul, is that last danger, the danger from false brothers. False apostles who described themselves as servants of righteousness. And so you have these these very people who were denying that Paul was an apostle because he wasn't prosperous enough. He wasn't put together well enough. He wasn't eloquent enough in his speech. And because of that, they asserted their self-made authority over his and led people astray. And the overall effect on Paul is summarized in verse 27, where he says, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. This gives an idea of an extended time of misery and great suffering, even more than we've already heard. And so what we see is Paul obviously choosing this non-prosperous lifestyle, and he even says later that he labored night and day to preach the gospel by any means necessary. That's the toil and the hardship he's referring to. His sleepless nights were voluntary insomnia because he would stay up all night in prayer and he would stay up all night practicing his speech, trying to get better at speaking. He suffered cold and exposure because of the extreme travel required for the sake of the gospel. He willingly chose all of this. And so while the false apostles taught a prosperity-drenched gospel with a lot of money and honor and health promised, Paul lived contrary to that. The contrast could not be greater. Paul's opposition led from their outward strength and appearance, and he led from his weakness, and they despised him for that. They hated him for that. They said it was a sign that he was not blessed from God. And I know there's been many many brave men and women who were martyred and beaten for the sake of the gospel. I wish I had time to, to talk about what was actually going on in Paul's time frame. If, you want, if you're interested, just Google Emperor Nero, Emperor Vespasian, Christianity. Just the worst, worst time frame of persecution when Paul was alive. And I know even today there's many who experience excruciating pain so the name of Jesus might be known. But I have to wonder, is there anyone in all of history who has willingly suffered so much in his years? Anyone who had more near-death experiences, gruesome stonings, multiple shipwrecks, such great suffering over an extended period of time, Is there anyone that equals his life? If there is, that list is really short. But more than likely, 
It's not existent. Outside of Jesus, Paul is really a great hero of the church. He goes through all of this. But the resume of sufferings is not the end of it because his greatest suffering of all was his pastoral heartache. Look at verse 28. He says, And apart from, all, from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who was made to fall and I am not indignant? So on top of all that we've heard of Paul, just brutal sufferings, his anxiety for the church, he says, is his greatest suffering of all. We see this earlier in 2 Corinthians when, when he writes a tearful letter to the Corinthians, a different letter, because he's worried about them. And so he sends Titus ahead to Troas. He goes to Macedonia. And then when he gets there, he says, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within, having anxiety on anxiety on anxiety over the well-being of the church. This is an anxiety that was ongoing in Paul's life. He later writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 3. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. His heart could not stop thinking about the church. His heart went up and down and stressed and was full of anxiety over the well-being. And his greatest pain in life was not his physical pains, but his pains in his heart for people. One commentator says Paul's greatest boast is his constant worry over his people's welfare. And so to recap, Paul's foolish boasting was rooted first in his desirable heritage as an Israelite, a Hebrew, an offspring of Abraham. And then he switched to what was doubly foolish, boasting about beatings, almost being killed, shipwrecks, dangers, something that people of his day would never boast of. But the crowning boast in all of this is his anxiety for the church. His greatest suffering was his greatest boast. And this parody on Caesar's resume had turned everything upside down. It was a completely countercultural argument. For Paul, weakness was the singular qualification for gospel authenticity. That flew in the face of Corinthian culture. They could not understand it. It was incomprehensible. And in terms of culture in Vancouver 2021, it's incomprehensible as well. And sadly, to many within the church, it's incomprehensible. And so as Paul begins to conclude, I will as well, he has a summary here that functions as a transition for where we're headed in the coming weeks. 
Look at verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. That's what he's been doing, isn't it? Showing this long list of sufferings. And now with this sentence, what he does is he sets the readers up with insight into the relationship between suffering and weakness. That's where we're heading. You guys can come on up as we start to close here. Caesar's resume was a cultural model for false apostles' resumes. They would copy it, and so you would hear them say things like, I have six letters from from prominent people in Athens and Rome to affirm my morality. Three times I've spoken before government officials. Twice I received honors from my peers. I am in every way imaginable, esteemed and respected. But, But Paul, instead of celebrating his achievements, which he could have easily done, he boasted in bearing the cross of Christ, bearing his own cross and following Jesus, denying himself and choosing a life of suffering and weakness. And today, sure, we find it all too easy to be shaped and led by culture rather than being shaped and led by the gospel. We need to be weary of our Christianity becoming Christianized versions of our culture. We must not write our resumes after the example of Caesar, but after the example of Paul. As Christians, we need to acknowledge and embrace our weaknesses because when we give our weaknesses to Christ, they become the vessel for his strength and glory to rule in your life. This is what Paul will argue again and again and again and again. This is the mystery and call of the Christian life, that we renounce the boasting of the teachers and powers that we are trusting in, and you replace it with the boast of the power of God working through your weaknesses. The glorious truth is when you renounce all other forms of power, you can know the freedom and joy that only Jesus can bring. And so we gotta ask, can we embrace our weaknesses? Will we embrace our weaknesses? Who are we learning from? Who are we allowing to teach us? The answer to those questions has everything to do with the authenticity of the gospel in your life. They have everything to do with the gospel authenticity in the life of the shore and the life of our mission to make Jesus known. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your cross, for your blood that was spilled for us, that the symbol of our faith 
is a blood-splattered cross. Our faith is rooted in weakness so that your power might be made known. And I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters watching this, that you would work in their hearts, that you would help them do the difficult yet necessary work of self-examination to see where we're learning from. Are we being taught by you, Jesus, or are we being taught by the world around us? Would you guide us, help us love you more, help us know you more? And it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.